welcome to the Hotel Analyst podcast. My name is Chris Bowne, the editor at Hotel Analyst, and today I'm joined on the podcast by Andrew Sankster, the editorial director at Hotel Analyst, and our guest is Tom Page, head of hotels and leisure at the law firm CMS. We've picked three topics as we grind through the coronavirus lockdown to talk about, and the first of those is the whole subject of cleanliness. Um, quite a few hotel groups and some other organisations are sort of getting their act together as regards some kind of stamp of approval for their properties as and when uh, things come out of the lockdown and start to reopen. Um, and the first to this particular game was the state of Singapore, who's actually launched SG Clean, which is a whole campaign to demonstrate to the public that um, pretty much every hospitable premise in the city-state is going to be uh, vetted and checked and pass some kind of standard. But of course, the other big hotel groups are also jumping onto this. Uh, we've had Marriott, we've had Accor, and uh, even today we've had NH Hotels, the Spanish group, all teaming up with uh, organizations to help them uh, drive through a campaign that proves that if you turn up one of their hotels, they're going to be cleaned and maintained to a particular standard. Um, Tom, do you see this as a, uh, a key element in uh, getting back the, the trust of the travelling public? Uh, I think it can only be necessary, can't it? Um, it's, uh, it's clearly something that's going to affect people's decisions as to when they start travelling again, as to whether they feel safe doing so, both on the, the transport, which is probably more the higher risk, I'd have thought, in the, in the eyes of most travellers and, and the places they, they stay at. Um, so, uh, yes, I think it's essential for hotels to earn the trust of their guests. And, and I wouldn't be surprised also if in some countries like Singapore we start seeing state-mandated systems, either, either you know, certification or, or simple legal requirements to impose additional, you know, uh, cleanliness obligations um, on, on businesses. The big worry I had was that, uh, you know, there's a whole plethora of different schemes being started up and, and I couldn't help feeling, if you, if you look at it from a consumer's point of view, do you probably just like the, uh, the blanket, all-in-one uh, simplicity of the, of the Singaporean uh, option rather than uh, a kind of brand-led individual uh, approaches that seem to be sprouting up left-right centre? I think you make a good point, Chris. It reminds me a bit of the whole star rating system. But ultimately, I'd argue that that star rating thing was won by the brands. Consumers abandoned the sort of national efforts at star rating and swung behind judging a property on on the brand itself and on, on reviews. Um, I, I think it got to such a farce where we had a different system in Scotland to the one in England. Um, and there was just no uh, coherence across it. And internationally, it completely failed. Now, what is interesting here, of course, when we have the rebound primarily in domestic tourism, there is a possibility that, yeah, uh, if you've got it at state level, at national level, you, you can, it can be effective. But I'd still argue that ultimately this plays into the hands of the big brands. And indeed, we've seen the big brands move um, quite quickly um, on this, providing their own reassurances and their own consumer messaging uh, you write about this week Accor Chris I think I mentioned Hilton's launch this week Hilton's teamed up with the maker of disinfectant brand Dettol 
which I think is a very smart <laughs> marketing move. Um, Don't drink it, indeed, um, um, and the healthcare institution Mayo Clinic. So it's, it's got both a brand name in healthcare and a brand name in disinfection. Um, so I think that's that's quite clever. And I think the 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 big brands are well placed to drive this forward. And I think I think you're right, and, Andrew. I think it comes down to, to trust, doesn't it? I I personally don't think the difference between the schemes or whether they're state or, 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 or brand imposed makes a huge amount of difference to the consumer. I don't think the consumer will get into the detail of that. I think they just want to know that they're traveling with someone they trust yeah. to take appropriate steps. And if yeah. they trust that, 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 that the brand they choose is taking it seriously, whichever scheme that is, um, then that's more likely to make them accept that. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think on, in the international context, I certainly think the big brands are going to win here. There's also another point um, to this is which we've up the last 10 or 20 years, it's all been about unique experiences. It's been about um, boutique style hotels. Well, I think this flips the whole thing on its head. And what consumers are going to be looking for is that standardized offer, that guarantee of a brand standard. And, and those strict rigid branding issues which people took offense at prior to this whole pandemic actually now is what they're going to be seeking so it's those if you like old-fashioned brands those rigid brands which are going to come to the fore in this and they're particularly placed to the the strengths of um, limited service new build properties um, and in addition to that these same properties have a big advantage um in in terms of operations they haven't got the pools they haven't got the gyms and they've got a much more straightforward low contact uh service provision um, i think the user reviews will also play into this quite heavily because you know issues of things like cleanliness has always been a, an issue that's been picked up on on user reviews and i think there'll be you know greater intolerance from those reading TripAdvisor reviews for any reports from other users that 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 there's any sign of uncleanliness because that will not just signify a sort of a you know, lack of care and attention but also as you say in this um post-coronavirus scenario a, a real you know risk to the health as well well one thing i wanted to ask you tom was about um in terms of who's going to be bearing the risk here i mean historically it's always been pushed from the brand owners down to the own at the property owner level um are they going to be able to get away with that same approach this time around do you think or or do you think there's going to be have to be more risk sharing because in terms of an insurance company underwriting this they're going to look to have a global um, company behind it rather than an individual property owner behind it um, and i just wondered whether there's an opportunity what your thoughts were in terms of this risk um profile that that maybe we could see some of the brand companies actually step up and take on some of that risk on behalf of the owners or does this get us into a whole quagmire of of legalities the normal obviously position of the operators is that those types of risks are all business risks which sit with the with the owners under management agreements or franchises regardless of whether they've imposed certain requirements as, as brand standards um i'd be surprised if they um uh, start offering any um uh, of their own backing to cover those risks but i think uh in any event it's it's probably more the guest risk in most cases anyway because it's going to be very hard for a guest to prove where they've caught a a particular disease from and, and whether they've caught it from a uh, an insufficiently cleaned room or a member of staff in the in the restaurant or from somebody they bumped into in the street before they walked in the door so 
in practice, I don't see many claims against hotels coming to the fore from people who've been infected, um, simply because the, the evidential burden will be non impossible to, um, to satisfy. Now, our next topic we're going to talk about is about the whole relationship between the landlord, the property owner, and uh, the hotel operator. Uh, we're in a situation where revenues in lots of hotels have dropped to pretty much zero, and uh, it's all about possibly sharing the pain, uh, where rents are due and there's no money to pay them. Um, and uh, the, the pain's apparently being shared in some places, and in other places it would appear that certain um, members in the in the stack are looking to um, play a little harder. Um, what we've seen particularly in the UK is uh, Travel Lodge has not paid any of its quarterly rents and has then released a uh, package of proposals to its landlords um, demanding effectively some discounts. Um, other hotel groups have said out loud that they'll pay, they will pay all of their rents, um, even though they're not getting any, any revenues much coming in. Um, it's a bit of a sticky one, Tom, and I guess you may be involved in one or two discussions uh, on behalf of clients about, uh, or with clients, about what, what the approach should be. Yes, so we've got, we've got clients on both sides of that equation. Um, we've got a significant institutional investor base who are mostly landlords, and equally we've got a number of operator clients, you know, both in the hotels and the, the restaurants and other spaces um, as well. In, in relation to, to, to Travel Lodge, um, obviously, uh, you know, in, in previous times, that would have been the sort of route that would have been done through a, a, a CBA. Uh, and the advantage of a, of a CBA is that it provides an element of transparency in terms of what everyone is being asked to adopt, and it requires an element of majority buy-in, so it can't be imposed um, uh, other than on a minority where, where the majority of creditors have, have accepted it. And I think... Um, you know, what we're seeing obviously in this is partly due to the urgency and, and, and partly due to, frankly, a little bit of opportunism from, from some um, is an attempt to sort of avoid, you know, the cost and, and process requirements of going down a, a CVA route and trying to do it by a back door and sort of pick off individual landlords. Um, in our experience, you know, the landlords are not um, entirely averse to, to recognizing that they have to share um, some pain. Um, there are a few who are constrained, so there might be, for example, funds where the fund manager has no discretion to make any any um, uh, you know reef concessions for their tenants. But other than those scenarios, I think most investor landlords recognise that it's not going to be in their interest to play hardball. Um, ultimately, that will only cause tenants to go um, bust, and they'll end up with premises they can't um, uh, refill or relet. Um, or in a, in a sort of management type scenario, end up potentially even taking over the, um, you know, the operating risks or, or the employee payroll, um, which they really don't want. So, um, uh, but I think the concerns from some landlords is that there are some tenants who are taking advantage of the situation and um, not paying rent, even though they could afford to. Um, uh, and uh, there are some who are concerned that by taking a more moderate approach, um, they may be effectively subsidizing fellow landlords who are taking a more aggressive approach because uh, ultimately if a tenant can pay some of its landlords but not all of them, um, it's likely to pay the ones who are kicking up the biggest stink uh, <laughs> and 
and will take relief from those who are offering to be a bit more moderate, in which case the landlords who are being more moderate might feel they're not helping the tenant, they're simply helping those more aggressive landlords. So, you know, a CBA obviously obviously prevents those sort of um, separate arrangements being made with each landlord and, you know, all have to share the pain or none have to share the pain. Um, uh, so uh, it'd be interesting to see how the market reacts, the sort of the, the, the landlord population reacts to the travel lodge um, proposals. And oh, we've got the wider piece as well um, in, in, in the hospitality market. So particularly once you um, start looking at um, restaurants, and uh, quick service uh, restaurants and so forth, um, there's a campaign in the UK called National Time Out where they're calling for a nine-month break on rent payments, which is um, quite a big ask, I think, for most um, landlords. And I'm not quite sure what the founders of this campaign are actually asking for. Um, when challenged, what I've seen them say is, well, the landlords can simply extend the lease by nine months um, if they so wish. Um, who actually pays the, the the debt finance in the meantime, in the nine months in the meantime, is, is not entirely clear whether they're expecting the landlords to sort of find a magic money tree at the, the back of their cupboard to help with that debt service. Um, I think the real problem here is going to be where the pain ultimately ends up falling. And when we've had big property crashes in the past, I'm thinking back to the, the 1990s, we end up with a situation where banks the lenders end up as the uh, as the ultimate owners and i think we're going to see a lot more of that this time around than we have done um say in the 2008 2009 crash um it was expected then there'd be a lot of um um bankrupt uh, uh um owners um but we didn't see that the banks extended it and pretended it I'm just not sure that the banks can extend and pretend to the extent that is going to be necessary this time around. And I wonder whether we're actually going to see a lot more bankruptcies and a lot more um, um, uh, banks actually running hotels. And certainly it was interesting, Chris, in your piece, when you talk to Pandox, they're clear, you know, as an owner, they're gearing up to take back some of the properties where there's leases if, if they don't get the rent. And frankly quite rightly too because they could do the job um and if they're not getting paid um then that's a huge issue um so this is going to be i think a very different downturn to the one we saw in 2008 2009 and i suspect it's going to look a lot more like the 1990s well and also one one agent suggested to me that uh, you know those who've been up front and said they'll pay 100 percent will uh, be top of the pile when it comes to um, new sites becoming available in, in due course. Um, well, it's, well, it's interesting that, isn't it? I mean, you know, Tom talks about CVAs, and of course, Travelodge has already been through a CVA, so are they going to go through a second one? Um, they were certainly still able to sign leases. The, the actual margin that they were paying um, wasn't that much higher than, say, Whipred, 
um, and with Premier Inn, they've carried on paying all of their rents. That there ought to be some market distinction here between those people who are paying the rents and those who aren't. And you know, I hope you're right, Chris, in, in, in the, and the uh, anonymous source you quoted um, in your piece is right. Um, I'm not sure that's the case as we come back into it and the cycle starts picking up again. People do tend to have short-term memories. Um, but I, I, I think I, you're right on that, Andrew, in terms of uh, short-term memories. Un unfortunately, we all know that you know the, the whole cycle of boom and bust is, is, is predicated on relatively short-term memories. I think just going back to one of your previous points, um, uh, I think the, the, the solutions are inevitably not going to be standardized across the market. Different landlords are in different situations. A landlord who is has no um, leverage and is a, you know, income pension fund for example may well be able to absorb you know not receiving any any rent for a short period um uh, uh those who have got debt may find that their banks are not you know have given them an interest holiday so there is no debt service in that in that meantime that the rent needs to fund um uh so the, the the interest may still accrue and may still add to the end but that's where a, an extension to the term may add value um you know later on so we are seeing some uh you know rent forgiveness in exchange for lease extensions i think that the extension period is clearly going to have to be longer than the rent forgiveness period because losing six months rent now is not the equivalent of gaining another six months rent in five or 20 years time um so the periods of extensions will be longer than the than the rent forgiveness periods the question yeah. will be is, is whether or not those rent forgiveness periods are going to be long enough because if someone who agrees a six month you know rent relief period now in exchange for you know, adding whatever three, five years on at the end of a 20-year term, what happens if they still can't pay, you know, in six months' time? Um, and uh, right. uh, that's that's going to be different. I think in terms of your point about the enforcements, um, I don't disagree that there's a sort of, you know, ultimately this is all cash that is not coming into the system and it's after going to be shared around between all the, the parties to some extent and different people are going to end up with different amounts of pain. But the difference between this time and, um, you know, the financial crisis in 2008-9, you know, and through when the banks were enforcing in sort of 10-11, um, is that in that case, in most cases in the financial crisis, even where values had, had been hit significantly and, you know, debts were bad and, and um, borrowers couldn't afford to repay or in breach of covenants, the hotels were still making an underlying operating profit. And so the banks could always enforce. They may not get all of their uh, principal back. They may not get their interest served, but at least there is net cash cash coming in the door from the underlying asset. The problem we have this time around is that, you know, all of these businesses at the moment are making operating losses. No bank is going to want to take on ownership of something that is making losses um because even funding the business rates or funding you know that small amount of payroll that's not covered by furlough or if when the furlough scheme comes to the end paying for redundancies um if they can't reopen the hotel is all going to be further cash out that the bank won't want to take on so i think we will probably see um you know a number of um uh, uh potential enforcements whether by landlords or by lenders deferred until such point in time that the market has recovered that the assets make underlying profits again. 
um, because until that point in time, um, uh, those people won't want to fund their operating losses. I I, I absolutely agree. And in fact, there's not going to be many people in the market wanting to pick those assets up. So it doesn't doesn't really do the banks a lot of good to to enforce too early. But at at that point, it's going to start getting very interesting. Um, What we didn't see last time around was with all of the... um, uh, sort of covenant breaches that went on, we didn't see much enforcement by the banks as we got into the recovery period. It was quite different to how it was in the 1990s when there was enforcement, when banks saw the opportunity to actually make some money on some of the assets. I suspect that this time around, we're going to see a similar approach as we come into that recovery period. Um, like you, Tom, I, I think it's going to be a, a long while before we get into that recovery period. Um, I, mean, I think the earlier I think the earlier enforcements will be where either there are more alternative lenders uh, who are under less political pressure um, or where banks have have sold down debt to investors who have capital who are you know willing to fund the operating losses in the short term in order to be able to you know, make back the value of the asset later on. So if they buy it at a sufficient of a discount, they can use that discount to fund both the operating losses in the short term and they have capital available to put in to do that. Um, And that, you know, discount will then, um, you know, disappear as the asset returns to, to full levels of profitability, which, you know, could be a year, two years. We don't know how long away. Um, uh, and and that's, I think that's where we will see more enforcements in the short term. But it will require, you know, investors with some guts because we don't know how long it'll take before assets will return to profitability. And and you know, with reasonably deep pockets who can afford to fund those, that will be, you know, taking on the the debts and and that sort of loan to own strategy. Um, I don't see, you know, lenders and landlords doing an awful lot of um, enforcement other than in terms of landlords, maybe the ones like Pandox who are happy to take on the operational risk. But if you're a pension fund and you can't do it, you're not going to be enforcing at this point in time because you can't relet it. Mm. What, what's your sense of in terms of the willingness um, to take on operational risk? Um, do you think that's going to retrench now? Because what we were seeing is, is this push towards that. And we'd seen people like Schroeder's buy in an operator in Algonquin. And we'd seen a lot of the institutional money getting access to operational real estate like that. Do you think that's going to go into reverse gear to an extent now? I don't think so, because I don't think, I think as everyone's discovering, the rent is no more secure than the operational risk. So you've, you've still got an yeah, element yeah. of operational risk. If you're willing to invest in a hotel in the first place, um, uh, or any business that has a, an operational tenant, um, then, uh, then, then you always bear some of that risk. Um, uh, so I don't think, you know, I don't think it makes as much difference. What it might make is that there's more distinction between you know, leases to, um, you know, sort of uh, investment grade credit worthy tenants um, uh, compared to, you know, leases to other operators. Um, so there may be more distinctions between, you know, a lease to a Whitbread who is, you know, paying its rent through the through the way um, uh, and which may be seen as more comparable to an office lease to a, to a you know, secure tenant credit worthy tenant compared to um at least to a to a more highly geared or privately owned operating company which may be seen more like a, a managed agreement in risk in the sense that although it's a stable 
payment that's due, the uh, the risk is is still with the operations because if the operations don't make enough cash to cover it, then then you don't get paid. Um, so we may see more distinction along those lines, perhaps. So our third topic we're going to speak about this week is uh, what happens next. And um, this week we had uh, a bit of an update from Accor, and the CEO Sebastian Bazan was looking forward to the summer, um, confident, I think, that uh, some of his hotels. In fact, perhaps many of these hotels across Europe will be reopening. And um, that optimism was perhaps reinforced by uh, news this week that uh, Austria is going to allow its hotels to start opening on the 29th of May. Um, so Bazan said uh, he's looking forward to a positive summer, but he's expecting a lot of his uh, clientele to be domestic travellers. And that's something that uh, many others looking over the uh, situation in China and looking forward to the release of the lockdown, uh, are expecting to also happen. Um, so domestic travel, because we don't want to feel confident about getting on, on planes uh, and, and perhaps trusting what's going on in faraway lands. We feel safer about what's going on near our doorstep. Tom, do you see this, this having a big amp- impact as things start to open up? Yeah, there's a big difference, I think, between being allowed to open up and wanting to open up. Um, and, you know, this may depend on things like how long, you know, government support schemes uh, stay in place. Um, if your employees are being covered by a, by a furlough scheme by the government, um, then reopening your hotel and bring them back to work is going to massively increase your costs and uh because you no longer get that that government support for that payroll cost so you need to be sure that you're going to get the sufficient occupancy to to cover that additional cost so what we may see in a number of places whilst demand is is still weak is owners actually saying you know what i don't want to reopen my hotel right now it's almost like a game of chicken yeah Yeah, i mean and operators obviously will be will be keen to reopen as soon as possible because you know their fees are based on 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 revenue primarily so any revenue that's coming in they will, will allow them to start earning some income um uh but we've already had examples of operators contacting owner clients going you know we want to open on this date and and we need you to fund you know um x million of of, of losses for 2020 in terms of our, our budgeting for the remainder of the year and the owner's going what well, you know what it'd be cheaper just to stay shut until the end of the year frankly um and this is going to be quite a problem, I think. Um, you know, the operators want to make good news because they want to encourage their, their guests to start thinking about um, traveling, even if only domestically, and start, you know, making bookings for July, August holiday period um, in anticipation of being able to travel. Um, so they'll want to sort of start making those positive noises. Um, but but it's going to be difficult for them to force their owners to uh, open against their wishes. They'll need those owners to, to be writing checks to fund the, the cost of opening, um, which could be quite significant for the remainder of the year. Um, and uh, they may have issues as well where they've got multiple assets in one city, for example, where they say, well, actually, we don't need to open all 10 Novotels in this city because not the demand. Let's open three of them. Well, then... You know, you might get owners going, well, hang on a second, why are you treating them differently to me? You know, if those hotels are making profits and the ones who aren't open will be complaining that why am I shut and not able to make those profits? Equally, if those ones that are forced to open are making losses, 
those ones are open going, well, why don't you let me stay shut so I can keep my cost to a minimum and you open those other ones yeah. and let them absorb all the yeah. operating losses. Um, so uh, there's going By to the be... By the way, winners and losers. Yeah. Yeah, there's going to be, there's going to be issues there in terms... Of, and, and, you know, it's not necessarily makes sense for them to open, you know, all 10 hotels in a city in one day or have many they've got in Paris, hundreds in, in, in Paris, no doubt, Accor. Um, so uh, there's, there's going to be some some challenges and um you know the assumption that owners will just write checks to fund operating losses in the short term uh, i think possibly misplaced on part of the operators um mm. and what what uh, in terms of this tension with the, the the brand owners operators there that um do they have any remedies if owners simply say no i'm not opening can they what are the remedies the obvious one obviously is taking back the the franchise or the management agreement but what are there any other remedies well, the other remedy is is damages for loss of fees. So they could say, well, um, you know, had had you um, opened, then um, I would have earned fees during this period. And you know, by by not funding the opening, you're not allowing me to do that. So, um, but if I was known, I'd be going, well, hang on a second, I'm going to counterclaim because you forcing me to open is is causing me greater losses than if I'd stayed shut. Um, and you have duties to act as a, you know, um, prudent um you know hotel operator uh with a view to you know making money out of the hotel not not taking actions that increases losses um so you're at, you're breaching your duty of care and and i'll counterclaim for the the losses additional losses i suffer in that period so it would end up in a sticky mess frankly um if operators tried to take an aggressive approach and i think they're just going to have to um you know tackle this from a purely consensual basis and doesn't really matter what the contract says mm -hmm. um because if if they start taking you know a, a you know we're going to strictly play by the contract position um you know everyone's going to be spending more time fighting than they are actually concentrating on on you know bringing the industry back to up to strength yeah it, it's interesting that that we were going to see that uh, that surge in tension and i'm not entirely convinced that this is in the share prices of the the global major brand owners at the moment actually um i i think there's a very optimistic assumption that as hotels uh, start opening they're going to start getting their full fee income coming rolling back in again and i think there's going to have to be some quite significant fee relief given here as you say on a pragmatic basis and it could be for some time and it, I, I think one of the things that comes out um when you when you look at this this that we're going to have domestic tourism rise um first so if you look at a country like france where they have a very significant surplus of in, in terms of their, their 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 balance trading balance with regards to tourism something like a 25 percent drop um is the calculation that analysts at bernstein calculated uh, france would suffer in terms of their tourism revenue if it were only domestic um the uk and germany on the flip side actually benefit from they're only being domestic tourists because obviously the Germans and the Brits aren't going to be able to go overseas. Um, the problem in all of these scenarios, of course, is you've got a, a surplus of properties in France and a huge shortage of properties in the UK and Germany, um, where at least in the short to medium term, there's going to be this sort of stronger levels of demand. And how we manage to shuffle that around the tourism economy i think is going to be very interesting and how much travel there's going to be within europe i mean how willing the germans are going to be to to just 
to start heading south, for example, I think is a, is a key issue. I mean, Spain is going to suffer even more dramatically than, than France, a 40% drop in their tourism revenue um, if they don't get any international arrivals. If the Germans, who are the biggest source market for Spain, and the Brits, the second biggest, don't come, Spain's going to have big trouble, I think. Yes, that's right. That's right. And even within domestic markets, you know, if, if it's if it's mostly driven by the, the leisure rather than business, um, you can't assume that, that that demand will spread out evenly because, um, you know, the fact that there's a, a, a travel lodge in, in Bradford doesn't mean I'm going to go there for my holiday. So, um, uh, uh, you know, if, if, if you're a, if you're a you know, resort hotel in, in the UK, in the Lake District or on the South Coast or somewhere, you might be licking your lips um, at the thought of, of, you know, lots of cooped up British people being suddenly released from uh, from lockdown, but unable to go abroad for their summer holidays. Um, but that's not going to be evenly spread around the, the, the hotel economy. No. No, I mean, we still don't really have a full, fully full picture of how much all these extra costs, such as the extra cleaning. I mean, there's talk. I mean, Airbnb have announced that there, there's going to be a three-day gap, a 72-hour gap between one guest and the next guest arriving. Well, if we start seeing something like that in the hotel industry, that's going to have a huge impact in terms of occupancy levels. So even yeah. if we reopen, there's going to be no, no bounce in, in, in trade if we've got restrictions like that imposed and how you actually operate the hotel profitably is, is such a huge challenge, uh, such a uh, sort of known unknown right now. Yes, I suspect, I suspect for hotels that becomes less of an issue because uh, I think it's wishful thinking to think your hotel will be so full that you couldn't manage to leave, you know, one or two days between each 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 room. But obviously for an Airbnb where it's a single unit, that's um, you know that 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 knocks out uh, a large part of your business. Um, but uh, yeah, it will have very substantial impacts um, on on the ability to um, to return to profitability. Right, Which and on you... that note, I'm off to buy a tent. <laughs> <laughs> I'm off to buy a campsite, I think. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> right, well, thank you very much. Uh, we'll say bye for now. <laughs>